0: We're back with another episode of the Evening Under Lamplight Podcasts Series 3 with me, Robert Louis Abrahamson, and another one of Stevenson's fables. We have before us today one of the more elaborate stories in the collection. Not really a fable, much more like a fairy tale, but there is a moral at the end, so in that sense it's very much like a fable, but not like Aesop's tame fables and not like the usual children's fairy tales, either. It's called the House of Eld. Eld meaning something like the elders in the community, so giving us the sense that the House of Eld is like the community ruled by elders, following the traditional ways of old. In fact, we find ourselves in a society as rigidly controlled as the one in the yellow paint, where the physician, you remember, and the townspeople placed all their faith in one practice, something that we we discover has no connection to the realities of the world as we live it. The religious practice we find in the house of Eld is not so much disconnected from life as just life denying, or at least life hindering. Everyone has a jive or iron band, riveted around their ankles, which impedes their movements and lacerates their skin. That's the given in the story. What happens next? Well, here's the story, slightly longer than any we've heard so far, but one of Stevenson's great tales. Attend. The House of Eld. So soon as the child began to speak, the jive was riveted and the boys and girls limped about their play like convicts. Doubtless it was more pitiable to see and more painful to bear in youth, but even the grown folk, besides being very unhandy on their feet, were often sick with ulcers. About the time when Jack was ten years old, many strangers began to journey through that country. These he beheld going lightly by on the long roads, And the thing amazed him. I wonder how it comes, he asked, that all these strangers are so quick afoot, and we must drag about our fetter. "Ah, my dear boy, said his uncle, the catechist, do not complain about your fetter, for it is the only thing that makes life worth living. None are happy, none are good, none are respectable, that are not jived like us. And I must tell you, besides, it's very dangerous talk. If you grumble of your iron, you'll have no luck. If ever you take it off, you will be instantly smitten by a thunderbolt. Are are, are there no thunderbolts for these strangers? asked Jack. Jupiter is long-suffering to the benighted, returned the catechist upon my word i could wish i had been less fortunate said jack for if i had been born benighted i might now be going free and it cannot be denied the iron is inconvenient and the ulcer hurts ah cried his uncle do not envy the heathen theirs is a sad lot ah poor souls if they but knew the joys of being fettered poor souls my heart yearns for them But the truth is, they are vile, odious, insolent, ill-conditioned, stinking brutes, not truly human. For what is a man without a fetter? And you cannot be too particular not to touch or speak with them. After this talk, the child would never pass one of the unfettered on the road, but what he spat at him and called him names, which was the practice of the children in that part. It chanced one day, when he was fifteen, he went into the woods, and the old sir pained him. It was a fair day, with a blue sky. All the birds were singing, but Jack nursed his foot. Presently another song began. It It sounded like the singing of a person, only far more gay. At the same time there was a beating on the earth. Jack put aside the leaves, and there was a lad of his own village, leaping and dancing and singing to himself in a green dell, and on the grass beside him lay the dancer's iron. Oh, cried Jack, you have your fetter off. Oh, for God's sake, don't tell your uncle, cried the lad. Well, if you fear my uncle, returned Jack, why do you not fear the thunderbolt? Oh, that's only an old wife's tale, said the other. It's only told to children. Scores of us come here among the woods and dance for nights together, and are none the worse. This put Jack in a thousand new thoughts. He He was a grave lad. He had no mind to dance himself. He wore his fetter manfully and tended his ulcer without complaint. But he loved the less to be deceived or to see others cheated. He began to lie in wait for heathen travellers at covert parts of the road and in the dusk of the day, so that he might speak with them unseen. And and, and these were greatly taken with their wayside questioner, and told him things of weight. The wearing of jives, they said, was no command of Jupiter's. It was the contrivance of a white-faced thing, a sorcerer that dwelt in that country in the wood of eld. He was one like Glaucus that could change his shape, yet he could always be told, for when he was crossed he gobbled like a turkey. He had three lives, but the third smiting would make an end of him indeed, and with that His house of sorcery would vanish, the jives fall, and the villagers take hands and dance like children. And and in your country? Jack would ask. But at this the travellers with one accord would put him off, until Jack began to suppose there was no land entirely happy. Or if there were, it must be one that kept its folk at home, which which was natural enough. But the case of the jives weighed upon him. The sight of the children limping stuck in his eyes. The groans of such as dressed their ulcers haunted him. And it came at last in his mind that he was born to free them. There was in that village a sword of heavenly forgery, beaten upon Vulcan's anvil. It was never used but in the temple, and then the flat of it only— and it hung on a nail by his uncle the catechist's chimney. Early one night Jack rose and took the sword, and was gone out of the house and the village in the darkness. All night he walked at a venture, and when day came he met strangers going to the fields. Then he asked after the wood of eld and the house of sorcery, And one said north, and one south, until Jack saw that they deceived him. So then, when he asked his way of any man, he showed the bright sword naked, and at that the jive on the man's ankle rang, and answered in his stead. And the word was still straight on. But the man, when his jive spoke, spat and struck at Jack, and threw stones at him as he went away, so that his head was broken. So he came to that wood, and entered in, and he was aware of a house in a low place, where funguses grew, and the trees met, and the steaming of the marsh arose about it like smoke. It was a fine house, and a very rambling. Some parts of it were ancient like the hills, and some but of yesterday, and none finished, and all the ends of it were open, so that you could go in from every side. Yet it was in good repair, and all the chimneys smoked. Jack went in through the gable, and there was one room after another, all bare, but all furnished in part, so that a man could dwell there, and in each there was a fire burning, where a man could warm himself. "'and a table spread where he might eat. "'But Jack saw nowhere any living creature, "'only the bodies of some stuffed. "'This is a hospitable house,' said Jack, "'but the ground must be quaggy underneath, "'for at every step the building quakes. "'He had gone some time in the house "'when he began to be hungry. "'Then he looked at the food.' and at first he was afraid, but he bared the sword, and by the shining of the sword that seemed the food was honest, so he took the courage to sit down and eat, and he was refreshed in mind and body. This is strange, thought he, that in the house of sorcery there should be food so wholesome. As he was yet eating, there came into that room the appearance of his uncle, and, "'and Jack was afraid because he had taken the sword. "'But his uncle was never more kind "'and sat down to meet with him "'and praised him because he had taken the sword. "'Never had these two been more pleasantly together, "'and Jack was full of love to the man. "'It was very well done,' said his uncle, "'to take the sword and come yourself into the house of Eld. "'A, a good thought and a brave deed.' "'But now you're satisfied, and we may go home to dinner, arm in arm.' "'Oh, dear, no,' said Jack. I- "'I'm not satisfied yet.' "'How?' cried his uncle. "'Are you not warmed by the fire? "'Does not this food sustain you?' "'I see the food to be wholesome,' said Jack, "'and still it's no proof that a man should wear a gibe on his right leg.' Now at this the appearance of his uncle, gobbled, Like a turkey. Jupiter, cried Jack, is this the sorcerer? His hand held back, and his heart failed him for the love he bore his uncle, but he heaved up the sword and smote the appearance on the head, and it cried out aloud with the voice of his uncle, and fell to the ground, and a little bloodless white thing fled from the room. The cry rang in Jack's ears, and his knees smote together, and conscience cried upon him, and yet he was strengthened. And there awoke in his bones the lust of that enchanter's blood. If the jives are to fall, said he, I must go through with this, and when I get home I shall find my uncle dancing. So he went on after the bloodless thing, In the way he met the appearance of his father, and his father was incensed, and railed upon him, and called to him upon his duty, and bade him to be home while there was yet time. For you can still, said he, be home by sunset, and then all will be forgiven. God knows, said Jack, I fear your anger, but yet your anger does not prove that a man should wear a jive on his right leg. And at that, the appearance of his father gobbled like a turkey. Ah, heaven, cried Jack, the sorcerer again. The blood ran backward in his body, and his joints rebelled against him for the love he bore his father. But he heaved up the sword and plunged it in the heart of the appearance. And the appearance cried out aloud with the voice of his father, and "'Fell to the ground, "'and a little bloodless white thing "'fled from the room. "'The cry rang in Jack's ears, "'and his soul was darkened, "'but now rage came to him. "'I have done what I dare not think upon,' said he. "'I will go to an end with it or perish. "'And when I get home, "'I pray God this may be a dream,' And I may find my father dancing. So he went on after the bloodless thing that had escaped, and in the way he met the appearance of his mother, and she wept. What have you done? she cried. What is this that you have done? Oh, come home where you may be by bedtime, ere you do more ill to me and mine, for it is enough to smite my brother and your father. Dear mother, it's not these that I have smitten, said Jack, it was but the enchanter in their shape, and even if I had, it would not prove that a man should wear a jive on his right leg. And, at this, the appearance gobbled like a turkey. He never knew how he did that, but he swung the sword on the one side, "'and clove the appearance through the midst, "'and it cried out aloud with the voice of his mother, "'and fell to the ground, and with the fall of it, "'the house was gone from over Jack's head, "'and he stood alone in the woods, "'and the jive was loosened from his leg. "'Well,' said he, "'the enchanter is now dead, and the fetter gone.' "'But the cries rang in his soul,' and the day was like night to him. "'This has been a sore business,' said he. "'Let me get forth out of the wood "'and see the good that I have done to others.' "'He thought to leave the fetter where it lay, "'but when he turned to go his mind was otherwise. "'So he stooped and put the jive in his bosom, "'and the rough iron galled him as he went, "'and his bosom bled.' Now when he was forth of the wood upon the highway, he met folk returning from the field. And those he met had no fetter on the right leg, but, behold, I had one upon the left. Jack asked them what it signified, and they said, Oh, that was the new ware, for the old was found to be superstition. Th- then he looked at them nearly, and there was a new ulcer on the left ankle, "'and the old one on the right was not yet healed. "'Now may God forgive me,' cried Jack, "'I would I were well home.' "'And when he was home, "'there lay his uncle smitten on the head, "'and his father pierced through the heart, "'and his mother cloven through the midst. "'And he sat in the lone house "'and wept beside the bodies.' old is the tree and the fruit good very old and thick the wood woodman is your courage stout beware the root is wrapped about your mother's heart your father's bones and like the mandrake comes with groans that final mandrake image at the very end could use a little explanation The mandrake root is shaped sort of like a human figure, and the superstition was that when you pulled it up from the ground, it made a groaning sound. The root of that old tree is like the mandrake, and when you pull it up, that is, when you get rid of the traditional practices, the tree makes a groan, or as we see here, it is you who makes the groans, you the hopeful deliverer. The bitter conclusion of the story seems pretty clear, doesn't it? This community tells everyone that the only way they can be holy is to cripple themselves with this painful practice, and it teaches them to be intolerant towards anyone who is not pained as they are. Jack one of only two characters in all of the fables who actually has a name, and this a common name that doesn't really identify anything about him. He could be any of us, all of us, each of us. Jack gradually awakens to the injustice, or at least the cruelty, of the unquestioned practice of placing the jives on everyone's legs, and he determines to do something about it. He sets out on his quest to save the community, and after overcoming those triple temptations, he achieves his quest, killing the sorcerer. Is this then a happy ending? No. His return back to everyday life reveals, first of all, that he has made no real difference in people's lives after all. They merely shifted the jive from one leg to the other and when he gets home he discovers that his liberation from that one kind of oppression has bereft him of all that he holds dear and he sat in the lone house and wept beside the bodies not a violent ending but very bleak so so what do you do nothing woodman is your courage stout the moral asks You face pain as you destroy the traditional ways, and you face disappointment as you see that the people actually desire or need to have some stricture, some constraint imposed upon them from outside. Most people, but not all. And there are many, it seems, who have found ways to get round the restrictions, taking off the jives and reveling outside town in the secrecy of the woods. Is that good enough? They seem to think so, but they must live a double life. Um, Maybe we all have to live double lives of some sort. And so are you going to kill the sorcerer to save people who don't want to be saved? Do all countries have their own kind of restrictions? Is the pain of killing off your community's inherited past symbolized by Jack's killing his beloved parents and uncle, is this pain better than the pain of suffering those jives? The fable does not answer these questions, but it makes us think about them and to see what's going on around us, and within us, perhaps more clearly. If so, it's achieved its purpose. Before we go, we should look also at the way the story undercuts the usual assumptions of what a fairy tale should be. In true fairy tale fashion, there is a young hero who seems braver, more intrepid, more virtuous than anyone else. The young man is given a quest and wanders into a mythic landscape or what Joseph Campbell calls the dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms, where he must survive a succession of trials. There is the magic, the wonder, the courage, which we find in the fairy tales. And there is a general air of strangeness, created in part by Stevenson's use of odd words and phrases, such as, walked at a venture, or cried out aloud, or a fine house and a very rambling which make the story feel like some ancient narrative set in a nowhere-land, a land that could be anywhere, even right here where we all live. But there's no happy ending. Things do not work out all right at the end of this fairy tale. For Stevenson, life is just not that simple. Or maybe we should say that Stevenson was fed up with the easy answers his elders threw at him like the physician's yellow paint, and so he needed, in his fable, to show the deeper complexities of our world. We must not go about like the fools we have seen in other fables, the sick man, the man who was deceived by his friend, the traveller who was killed by the citizen. We need to see that no victory is won without great loss, just as no loss itself is entirely hopeless well, it's time to move on. We meet another traveller in the next fable, a man who is no fool, but, we'll see, is wiser than most. Not that anyone is receptive to his kind of wisdom. Well, we'll learn more next time. See you then.